Well, I invite you to take your Bibles, saying this for the last time for a while probably, and turn to Romans 16, and you've got some notes in your worship folder. Um, At the top of your notes, there's a quote from William Tyndale. Uh, William Tyndale was part of the Reformation in England. Uh, He did the first translation of the Bible uh, directly from the Hebrew and Greek, and his was also the first English translation to take advantage of the printing press. Even just 20 or so years ago, um, in a, a list of the most uh, famous, the, the British people that have most impacted history, uh, Tyndale was number 26 out of 100 people. Um, in his own introduction to the book of Romans that he wrote in his 1534 Uh, edition nearly 500 years ago. Uh, These words are what he said. This is a kind of a modern translation of it, but you have it on your outline. Paul's letter to the church at Rome is recognized as the primary and most exceptional letter in the New Testament because it represents the purest essence of the gospel and serves as a guiding light to the rest of scripture. I believe, therefore, that it is fitting that every Christian not only memorize it, but also continually immerse themselves in its teachings to provide daily nourishment for the soul. Truly, one cannot read it too frequently or delve into its depths too comprehensively. The more it is studied, the more one will grasp its depths. The more it is explored, the more spiritual treasures will be unearthed from it. For it contains a vast and valuable collection of hidden and deep spiritual insights. So after the first service and after hearing this quote, someone came up to me and said, why don't you just start Romans over and do that? I I think we'll pass on that. But This is the 36th Sunday of the year and our 33rd message in Romans, and final message for now. Um, So you have this on your outline, Romans, uh, this is what we've seen so far. In Romans chapters one through three, we had the gospel laid out, but also God's wrath, the wrath of God, followed by our need for salvation because of our sin. And then in Romans three and four, the righteousness that comes through faith Uh, Paul talks about that more. At that time, um, I I gave an example, and I want to give it to you again, of a a dance instructor who was out late partying one Saturday night and went back and uh, found his way back to his hotel room, laid down, and and, um, early in the morning when this clock radio clicked on, and the do you remember what a clock radio is? It's one of those things that's on the side of the bed that had a, your time. And uh, you could set it so the radio would go off. And the radio went off, and he heard these words. If in the next few moments some great disaster should happen and you should be killed, and if you find yourself before God, and he should ask you, what right do you have to come into my heaven? What would you say? What would you say? Well, this dance instructor had never heard a question like that before, and he didn't know the answer. 
And so he listened very carefully as the person on the radio, I think it was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, explained to him how he could become a Christian, how he could give his life to Christ and, and how Christ could redeem him and he could have the promise of heaven, not based on what he felt or what he did, but based on the word of God. And so that dance instructor's name was a man named, named Dr. James Kennedy who became a pastor in Florida and came up with a, a method of evangelism that many people still use today called evangelism explosion. And that question that he asked was central to his sharing the gospel with people through evangelism explosion. And um, many people, thousands, tens of thousands I'm sure, uh, have come to Christ because of that uh, that man's evangelism explosion method. So in these first four chapters, what we see, and this is on your outline, is God's wisdom in our justification. We're justified before God. And how do we remember what justification means? This is a simplistic way. It's not the full sense of the word. But before God, it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God treats me because I've been justified by faith. Romans 5 then is a description of our identity in Christ. And in Romans chapter six through eight, we have a roadmap for spiritual victory. People say, well, how can I have victory in my Christian life? Well, there's a roadmap for us laid out in Romans chapter six through eight. And we see in these chapters, again, six through eight, God's wisdom in our sanctification, becoming like Christ, Becoming holy, which is a process that, that lasts our entire lives. And then in Romans 9 through 11, we see God's providence and wisdom throughout history. Especially with the Jews, as well as the Greeks. And, and then the section ends with a word of praise in, in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then in Romans chapters 12 through 15, it's a call to practical Christian living. How do we live out our faith in this world? And it opens with these verses in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you in to its mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. Paul guides us then logically through the practice of our theology by using our gifts to serve each other, by being submissive to those God has placed in authority over us, by living in harmony within the church, by dedicating our entire lives to God. And Paul ends this section with another word of praise in Romans chapter 15, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And then in Romans 16, like we saw last week, Paul sends greetings to the believers in Rome, uh, even mentions some that he's with in Corinth, where he writes the letter from. And, um, and then he ends with another word of praise for the third time in Romans 16, verse 20, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. 
And this, if you will, is the skeleton of the book of Romans. This is the basic structure that forms the foundation of the greatest words that are ever written by man, arguably. The name God appears impressively 153 times in this book, uh, even outnumbering the verb to be, which appears only 113 times. Um, Paul usually ends his letter with a benediction, a blessing over the people that he's writing to. But verses 25 to 27 is different. Instead of a, a benediction, we have here a doxology, another word of praise given directly to God in praise of who he is. So follow along in your Bibles as we read Romans chapter 16, uh, verses 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ, amen. This is God's word for us today. What Paul writes here in this word of praise is so appropriate. One commentator said, uh, said this of this doxology. It is the longest of Paul's doxologies uh, and maybe the most beautiful. It is beautiful. What a fitting way to end the book of Romans with all of this praise. And we've said this before, that theology, and this is on your outline, should always lead to doxology. Theology should always lead us to praise. And maybe what we could add is theology should always lead first to praxis, the Latin word for putting it into our lives, living it out in our daily lives, and then to doxology, to a word of praise. So is that the pattern of your life? Are you living your life for the praise of God? Whatever you're doing, whether you're in school, whether you're working, whether you're retired, in your family, in your neighborhood, with those closest to you, are you living your life as a life of praise and worship to God? That's what God, that's his goal for us. That's what he wants from us. That's why Paul ends with this, this amazing letter with these, this, these words of praise, this doxology. Does your knowledge of God lead you to a life of praise and worship? It's a great thing to pattern our prayers after the prayers of Jesus and after the prayers of Paul. Uh, when I was a, a new believer, uh, a, a man took me aside and, and he shared with me, he said, you know, there's some things that are essential for you to live out your Christian life. You need to have the, the input from God vertically down into your life. You need to talk with God. That's prayer. You need the word and you need prayer. You also need some horizontal relationships to be in order before the Lord. You need to be in fellowship like we are this morning in corporate worship. Uh, but you also need to have a relationship with non-Christians where they know about your faith and you're not afraid to speak up about your faith to them. 
And he asked me the question, which of these four areas is weakest in your life? And at the time, I answered prayer. And so we read a book by E.M. Bounds, a classic book called Power Through Prayer. And we studied the prayers of the Bible and, and the prayers of Paul. And we prayed and the prayers of Jesus. And we patterned our prayers after these prayers in the Bible. So this is a great way to pattern your praise right here. And the first kind of worship we see from Paul, number one on your outline, is praise that it is God's work that establishes us. And the first aspect of that established, being established is that, and this is also on your outline, it is God himself who is the one who is able to establish. God is the one who is able. That's the focus of the first part of, of his worship to God. Our God is able. And this is important because this is a way of talking about God's sovereignty. We believe that God is sovereign, that nothing takes him by surprise. He knows everything that happens in the world, in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts. He knows it all. And there are at least seven verses that use that terminology or the equivalent of it in scripture. You have them on your outline. God is able to save. He is able to keep us. He abounds in grace. He is able to help us in our temptations. He help, helps us grow in our spiritual development. He, he never quits. He is able to raise our bodies. The hope we, we have that we were talking about in Revelation. The point is that God is able to do as it says in Ephesians 3.20, and I love it the way it's put in the Amplified Bible, super abundantly, far over and above all that we dare ask or think, infinitely beyond our highest prayers, desires, thoughts, hopes, and dreams. Have you seen God do that for you in your life, in the lives of the people that you know, that you love? I have seen people take, I've seen God take people who are so hardened against the gospel, so anti-Christian, and turn their lives completely around by his grace. Think of the apostle Paul himself, who was on his way to kill Christians. And God got a hold of him on that road to Damascus, and, and he's and arguably he's influenced more people for Christianity than anybody has with writing so many of the letters in the New Testament. Man, I was really going in the wrong direction in my life. When I was in high school, I had a non-Christian friend come up to me, uh, a guy that we're actually staying with when I go back to my high school, my 50-year high school reunion in, in Wichita, Kansas in a few weeks. And he wasn't a Christian yet, but he said to me, he said, Kenny, you should become a Christian because your life is so messed up. <laughs> That's from a non-Christian friend. And then he and these other friends uh, who were not Christians either, but one was reading the Bible and I was making fun of him and, and uh, I told everybody to avoid this guy because he was getting religious and, and, uh, and he confronted me and he said, you need this too, Kenny. And I was like, he's, he's got religion, stay away from me. But God took my life and the lives of these three non-Christian friends. We all became Christians the same weekend at a retreat. 
And God has done a, I mean, he's turned my life around. I, in, in touch with another friend who's going to be at this reunion, and, and he said, Kenny, I saw your life become a life of joy while I stayed bitter and angry like you were before you were a Christian. That was me. That was my life. God turned, he did super abundantly, far over and above all I could dare ask or think. He, he can turn your life around. Has he done that? He wants to do that. You know, soon after coming to faith in Christ, I got involved in a ministry in my church and I, we were after some free advertising. So I went to the office of the Wichita Eagle and Beacon, our uh, local newspaper, and I talked to a reporter and, and told him about uh, what had uh, happened in my life. He asked really what had happened in my life and why I was interested in getting involved in this ministry. And um, uh, he happened to know my parents and, and I told him that my parents weren't Christians yet. They were religious. They went to church every Sunday, but they didn't know the Lord. And um, he put an, an article in the paper and um, much to my chagrin said those things in this article that uh, he said everyone, my, my dad was an attorney, my mom was a nurse, they knew, they were involved in a lot of civic organizations, a lot of people knew them, and they said, uh, we all, many of us know Herb and Alice Dodd, and Kenny, their son, is praying for their salvation. And, um, oh man, uh, <laughs> about 50 of my parents' friends uh, got the newspaper and cut that article out. We used to do that. I don't know if you uh, know that, but that's how we used to send articles before the internet. We would cut the articles out, and they circled in the article, uh, Kenny's parents don't know the Lord yet. It's like, oh my gosh. Anyway, um, that was a little embarrassing, but we did get the publicity for the ministry that I was involved in. Um, but um, when Paul says in verse 25 that God establishes us, the word establish is related to the word prop, like something that's propped up, something that's being held up. It's God who is capable of making us stand by providing us the firm foundation of Jesus. And so is he making you stand? Is he helping you to do that? Are you allowing the Lord to support you? You know, if men, if you weren't at the men's prayer breakfast yesterday, you missed out. Because we had Mike Weboko, one of uh, our, our, our members, a deacon and a, a former Navy SEAL, talk about how to survive an ambush uh, from Satan. And he said, the first thing you do when you hear fire is you drop down to your knees. You're trying to find out where the, the fire is coming from, where the enemy fire is coming from. And so he said that dropping down your knees is like prayer. And, and then he said, you, you, everybody's, we check on our friends. We make sure that everyone's okay. And he said, that's like the, the, the support we need from small groups, from a smaller group of, this is great corporately, being shoulder to shoulder, worshiping the Lord. But we need to be face to face in small groups, in a smaller group where people can get to know us so they can ask us questions and hold us accountable. That's why we believe in membership. Uh, but also, it, it, we, we need each other to support each other through hard times and in prayer. So we need that. And then we, we aim our weapons in the same direction. We need to take on the armor of God. 
and, and we need to pray and we need to be in the word and be in a small group. So are you allowing the Lord to support you by, by doing what you need to do to, to put yourself in a position to be supported? That's important. It is God who gives us the capacity to keep standing strong. I know many of you have lost loved ones, people who are very dear to you. And, and I've, seen God use, I've seen God use this body and your relationship with God to keep you standing. You've given me that testimony of, in your own lives. I've seen it so many times. Because Paul is not in Rome, he's still aware of the challenges of his readers that they're facing. And, and although he can't be there, he trusts God and God's power to fortify him and his friends. And he turns and he wants us to turn, and I want us to turn to praise and worshiping God. Paul talks in Ephesians 6 about having the shield of faith. I, I know a guy who has faced some tremendous challenges in his life, great temptations, great doubts, great discouragement. But his faith was like his spiritual protection. It was part of his armor. And I saw him discouraged and I saw him want to give up, but his shield of faith kept deflecting the arrows of discouragement and kept him strong in his faith. He didn't give up. And he had doubts and he questioned his faith, but I saw his faith remain strong and it, it reinforced his trust in God's promises. And God can do, wants to do the same thing for you. Is God using your shield of faith to protect you? As believers, God establishes us in salvation. In John 6, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Salvation begins entirely with God. And this means that what, what Paul says in, to the Philippians is true, that when he says, be confident of this, that God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so just like with the Philippians, God is able, Paul knew that God is able to establish the Romans in their walk with the Lord and, and keep them going. And God is able to finish the good work that he started in them. So Again, like with the Philippians, God knew that, that their future faithfulness was going to be okay because of the past faithfulness of God in their lives. Verse 25, now to him who is able to establish you. And how does God establish us? Paul continues in verse 25, in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ. By the gospel, that's how we're established. You know, the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians and he says this to them. He says in Colossians chapter two, verse six, not on your outline. So if you wanna jot that down, Colossians 2, six. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. So how did we receive Christ? By faith, the shield of faith, but we received him by faith. How do we live out the Christian life? By faith. One author described his early Christian life like this. He said, I felt that if something spectacular was not happening, my faith was weakening. 
And as a result, I missed most of what God was, was, what was going on in the valleys, what God was doing in my life, waiting to get back to the mountains. So when you are in the valleys, don't think God has abandoned you. God wants to teach you. He wants to grow you to be like his son. So when you're down and discouraged, just remember that God hasn't left you. Keep relying on your time in the word, on your brothers and sisters in Christ, your family here at Claremont Emmanuel who are praying for you. So listen again to Colossians 2.6 from a couple different other translations. Here's what they say. The New Living Translation says, And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to live in obedience to him. Uh, J.B. Phillips says it this way, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so go on living in him in simple faith. And the Wiest translation says, in the same manner, therefore, as you received the Christ Jesus the Lord, in him be constantly ordering your behavior. So, we became Christians by faith and we live our Christian lives by faith. So how is Jesus the key to all this? Why do we praise God for this? It's, this is in John chapter one, verse 18. Uh, John writes, no one has ever seen God, but God, the only son who is at the father's side has made him known. So the idea of God making him known is that Jesus has explained the Father. He's exegeted the Father. Exegesis is looking at Scripture and pulling out of it what God wants to say to us. The opposite of exegesis is eisegesis, which is looking at Scripture and determining what you want it to say. And that's not good. We want to exegete the Word of God. And so Jesus is the explanation of the Godhead. And so is our knowledge of Jesus, and this is on your outline, it is our knowledge of Jesus that is the key to knowing God and being established by God. That's why Jesus prayed in John 17, now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so the key to standing is making Jesus the center of everything. When that one man took me aside and told me about those four spokes, if you will, of that wheel, uh, the, the Bible and prayer and, and our fellowship together and evangelism. He said right at the center, always at the center needs to be Jesus. He's at the center of our lives. And so th the key to understanding is making Jesus the center of our lives. And the second part of being established, this is on your outline, is that we're established as the mystery is open to us. So what is the mystery? Well, in verse 25, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. So the mystery is not like something mysterious that we're not going to really know. That's not what the mystery is. Uh, the mystery is, uh, it's on your outline, a secret that was once hidden but is now made known. So the complete truth of Jesus Christ was not fully known until he rose from the dead, until he ascended into heaven. Now we know. Now it has been revealed in full. It's like what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins, 
just as the scriptures said. So the Old Testament scriptures are now fulfilled. The mystery is now known. He was buried and was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said, Paul says. So why is he emphasizing that? Because he's saying everything I'm telling you is grounded in the Old Testament. It'd be like having a friend who says uh, that one of your mutual friends has become engaged. And you think, no, they're not. They're not even dating. You know both of them. And then someone else comes and tells you that they're engaged. And you go, wait, that can't be true. And then you're convinced that it, it, you find out it is true. And so you talk to him and you meet the girl, you see her again and she shows you her beautiful ring and says, yes, I'm engaged. And he says, that's so crazy. I didn't even know you guys were dating. And then as she describes the relationship, uh, you, you might say, well, okay, that makes sense. If I'd been watching for that, I would have seen that, but I missed it. And now I see it very clearly. That's the kind of mystery he's talking about here. That's how it's revealed to us, if you will. There's a mystery in the New Testament in that sense of the word that's been revealed. Paul tells the Colossians exactly what the mystery is in Colossians 1.27. He says, the mystery is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. It's not a mystery anymore. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Peter described how the writing of the prophets is uh, uh, now it was a mystery, but now it's been explained to us. The prophets who spoke of grace that was to come. That they, they had faith in Jesus, but Jesus was in the future for them. So the reason we understand the gospel now is that the Holy Spirit gave Paul and the other apostles understanding of the Old Testament prophecies in the writing of Romans, in the other New Testament books. That's why Paul anchors everything he says in Romans in particular, because we're talking about that, but in other letters as well, in the Old Testament. And then verse 26, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God. In other words, the gospel has always been a part of God's plan. It was, in a sense, a partial message in the Old Testament when it was entrusted to the Jews. Uh, and, but now through, the, through the, them, them writing the prophecies about Jesus. But now it has been revealed in full. You know, I was listening to a, a guy who was Jewish talk about the best tract that you can give to a Jewish friend who doesn't know Christ. He said, give them Isaiah 53. He said he grew up in the temple and the, the, the rabbi would read all the time from Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 54, but never read from Isaiah 53. And when he asked the, the rabbi why he never read from Isaiah 53, the rabbi wouldn't tell him. But he said, it sure, he said, I wasn't even a Christian, but that sure sounded like Jesus to me. So you want to give Jewish friends a tract that tells them about Jesus? point them to Isaiah chapter 53 that Nathan read to us earlier, parts of it. So the faith of the Gentiles at the end of verse 26, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. In other words, Paul was saying the gospel, uh, the goal of the gospel is to reach out and promote obedience and faith among the Gentiles. The second kind of worship we see in these verses is praise for God's wisdom. God is the only God, and our God is a wise God. Verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. 
People think they're wise, they're not wise. Uh, there's a magazine that doesn't exist anymore called Futures Magazine. And um, at one time they did an article about the most overconfident and foolhardy predictions in all of history. And here are a few of them. <clears throat> in 1895, a very worried teacher uh, sat down the parents of Albert Einstein and said, it doesn't matter what he does, it doesn't matter what you do, this man, will, this boy will never amount to anything. Um, in 1954, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, as in Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C., said the Japanese don't make anything that the people of the United States would ever want to buy. 1986, Roger Smith, who was then the chairman of the board of General Motors, in 1986 made this prediction, before the year 2000, we will live in a completely paperless society. Well, that didn't come true, but God alone is wise. People think they're wise, they're not. God is wise. And we see enough of this and we can see why Paul says in verse 27 and calls God the only wise God. He is the only God and he is wise. Uh, he is infinitely wise. Wisdom means that our thinking begins and ends with God. That's on your outline. Uh, Harry Blumeyers was a former student of C.S. Lewis at Oxford. And he came to faith in Christ while being a student of C.S. Lewis. And he wrote this quote that you have on your outline about the Christian mind. And he says this, to think, here's what a Christian mind is. It's to think, to think secularly is to think within a frame of reference bounded by the limits of our life on earth. It is to keep one's calculations rooted in this worldly criteria. On the other hand, to think Christianly is to accept all things with the mind as related directly or indirectly to our eternal destiny as the redeemed and chosen, as redeemed and chosen child of God. So is that how you relate to everything in your life? Are you thinking Christianly? Are you thinking biblically? Are you thinking in a godly way about all of your life? All of it, your work, your hobbies, your relationships, everything. Are you accepting all of those things in your mind as related directly or indirectly to your eternal destiny as a redeemed and chosen child of God? That's the way God wants us to think about the world. Christianity is a thinking person's religion, if you will. Paul's thought with... Paul thought God with God's wisdom, and, and, and that's the way he wants us to think, with God's wisdom. So to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. So the early part of the doxology, back in verses 25 and 26, emphasized God's power to him who is able, God's sovereignty. And here in these last verse, this last verse, verse 27, the stress is on God's wisdom. And so a proper response to the mystery that Paul has written about is praise. Think about this. There is nothing about the gospel that would have ever crossed any of our minds or any mind of any human apart from God. No one would ever think up this way of salvation preserving the justice of God while at the same time allowing sinful men and women to be saved. 
And who could ever think of a way of sanctification that would be consistent with the gospel? On our own, we would emphasize good works. We would become legalistic so fast. And what's sad is that this world continues to think that the gospel is, uh, they can think of it as foolishness. That's what Paul writes in in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The, The gospel is considered by man to be foolishness. There was a pastor in Brooklyn, New York, who, was, who believed that Jesus was just a good teacher, just a good example for us. And one day he was leaving work and a, a girl came up to him and said, are you the pastor? And he said, yes, I am. And, and she said, would you come with me? My mom is about ready to die and I want you to get her into heaven. So this man goes and he sits next to this woman who's dying and he starts telling her about the example of Jesus and how good Jesus is and what a good teacher he was, and how many good things he had to say. And the woman said, you are not helping me. And so he didn't know what to say, and so this pastor talks, and he says, I I reverted to my childhood faith, and I told her how she was a sinner, and I was a sinner, and Jesus came to die on the cross so that she could have forgiveness and, and eternal life with God. And someone asking said, well, did you get her into heaven? And he said, yes, I got her into heaven. And by the grace of God, myself too. It's, it, it's, it's, so, it's so complex to understand, but it's so simple to understand. It's a, a relationship with God through Jesus. So God's wisdom, and this is on your outline, begins and ends with Jesus. And there are only two ways that glory is given to God through Jesus. It is only through Jesus that God can be known by us. John 14, 6 is a passage I know that many of you are familiar with. It says this, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. I've talked to people and they said, why is Christianity so narrow? Why is it so uh, exclusive? And why do you think other people don't have the answer? Other religions don't have the answer? How could you be so prideful? Not us. It's what Jesus said. He said, no one comes to the Father except through him. That is very exclusive. That is very narrow. But that is the nature of truth. If I say, hold this bottle of water up, and I say, this is a bottle of soda, you go, no, it's not. It's a bottle of water. Because you know by looking at it, you can see empirically that it is not a bottle of soda. It's a bottle of water. Truth is very narrow by its nature. And Jesus is very narrow in what he says. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. So the question begs itself, have you come to God through Jesus? That's the only way to get there. That's the only way to be known by God. And that's why Jesus prays in John 17, Father, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. He had a perfect relationship with his father. And everything he did during his earthly life was aimed at at revealing God's character and fulfilling God's plan for salvation. And then secondly, it's only through Jesus that we can glorify God. Paul exhorted us, whether we eat or whether we drink, to do all to the glory of God. Are you living your life for the glory of God? 
You know, Paul's words there inspired some writers of music, notably George Frederick Handel and Johann Sebastian Bach, to write on the bottom of all of their manuscripts in Latin, the Latin phrase, soli deo gloria, or sometimes just SDG. Not SDG and E, just SDG, standing for soli deo gloria, meaning for the glory of God alone. So the followers of Jesus, they they were followers of Jesus. They wanted their accomplishments to glorify their Lord. At Westminster Abbey in London, uh, there's an impressive sculpture of George Frederick Handel. Uh, The composer is standing there against a lot of backdrop of musical instruments. And he's holding a sheet music. And in the the sheet of music, it says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. And Handel's monument is appropriate for a couple of reasons. Number one, it preserves in stone uh, one of the sweetest melodies from the Messiah, which is his work, which I'm confident that we will all be singing together in heaven. And it was also, more than that, it expressed his hope in Christ alone for his salvation. As great as it is, Handel's Messiah uh, does not give him the promise of heaven. Only Jesus can do that. Eternal life comes only from our Redeemer, who is alive by the power of his resurrection and who has promised to make every believer to see the glory of God. So after all this, after Romans, after this chapter, after these verses, so what? So how does this impact us? How should it impact us? Well, maybe you can begin by acknowledging everything that happens in your life to the glory of God. Acknowledging it even publicly in front of your friends. But acknowledging it to begin with to God. Think about what you do as a vocation, about your hobby, about your interests, how you serve others. Can these activities be done for the glory of God? Hopefully they can. And you give glory to him as you do them. Maybe your focus this week is just in your own personal devotional time to spend some time focusing on God and worshiping him. Sometimes we come to the Lord with all of our requests. Lord, I need this and this and this. And he's saying, wait a second. Let's talk as friends. Worship him for who he is in your own personal devotional time. Make a special point of doing that this week. And remember to ask God for wisdom. He says in James 1, 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, just ask God. He'll give it to you liberally. He doesn't hold back. And in his wisdom, God has made it possible for us, once mired in our total depravity apart from God, to find an eternal home with him. And so to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, maybe you've heard all these sermons on Romans. But do you know Jesus? If you don't know him personally, we want to give you that opportunity this morning. And as always, we're going to have people up front to pray with you if you want to come up here and pray with them. But I invite you to do that this morning, to know Jesus. Make sure that you know the answer to that question. 
If disaster would hit and you were to die and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would be your answer? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you in prayer. We're humbled, Lord, by the wisdom and grace that is revealed in your word. And as we reflect on these teachings of Romans, Lord, we're reminded of the importance of your gospel in our lives. Lord, we recognize that salvation is a gift from you, and we stand in awe of your power to establish us in the faith. It's only through faith we know that, Lord, that we can find salvation and true transformation. We see your wisdom at work in our justification and in our sanctification. Father, how we pray that we would just live our lives for your glory, all for the glory of God. And finally, Lord, if there's anybody here who hasn't placed their faith and trust in you, may they do that this morning and respond to you in faith. Come forward and pray with someone who will be up here to pray with them. To you, our only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus. So I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.